from KQED. And welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. On Friday, President Trump commuted the sentence of his longtime friend and political advisor, Roger Stone, who had been convicted of lying to Congress and witness tampering. In a statement about Stone's sentence, Trump again disparaged an investigation into the ties between Russia and his 2016 presidential campaign. The next day, former special counsel uh, Robert Mueller defended his investigation and wrote that Stone was, quote, prosecuted and convicted because he committed federal crimes, end quote. We're going to discuss this and other national political news with Marisa Lagos, KQED politics correspondent and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Good morning, Marisa. Morning, Michael. Welcome. We also want to welcome Talu Oralinipa, who is White House reporter with The Washington Post, and we welcome you back to Forum. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good to have you both with us. And uh, Marisa, let me begin with you. And uh, let's begin by talking about the Roger Stone case. Uh, Guilty of seven felonies, including witness tampering and lying to federal authorities, 40-month sentence, even uh, Attorney General Barr called it a righteous prosecution. And let's recall also that he was taunting FBI agents and prosecutors and a federal judge saying he'd get off, and he did get off. Let's examine this from the perspective now of uh, Robert Mueller finally coming out and being more vocal and saying uh, he remains a convicted felon, rightly so. Uh, What kind of weight is this going to have politically? I mean, isn't that always the the $60 million question here, Michael, because it seems like, you know, in a lot of ways that this president is often Teflon. Um, But I do think you're seeing, and not just because of this commutation, but um, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, you know, his his continued dealing with foreign leaders, some cracks appearing. Um, I do think, you know, seeing Mitt Romney um, come out, not a huge surprise, right, to to speak out against this. He's been one of the few Republican senators who's been willing um, to sort of ding Trump on things, but excuse me, Marissa, I think the only other uh, Republican was Pat Toomey. That's right. So maybe a little bit more surprising there. I'm, I'm not as familiar with Pat Toomey, but I know that you know Romney has been um, in recent months at least one of the only, if not the only, Republican senator in many cases who has come out um, to to criticize the president. Um, I think what's interesting here is the schism within you know the Justice Department community. You obviously have, as you mentioned, Bob Mueller writing this op-ed, very rare for him to speak out publicly outside of what he produced during his investigation. You have, I think, thousands of, of you know, former Justice Department uh, lawyers who have come out and talked about this. But let's not forget, I mean, Bill Barr, the attorney general, opposed a longer sentence that his own prosecutors wanted. Um, in some ways, he's kind of trying to have it both ways. And I think in some ways that makes the commutation even more extraordinary because Barr, who has been such a good soldier for Trump, um, did speak out against it. But, you know, it, it, I think the bigger question I, for voters should be if this is what Trump is doing a few months before an election. What could things look like if he gets reelected? Well, let me go to you on this, Tolu. I mean, he's talking about uh, Stone being a target of an illegal witch hunt, and all of that kind of rhetoric is coming back, and it's coming back and forth. You even have Lindsey Graham now talking about inviting Mueller to testify before the House, excuse me, the Senate Judiciary Committee. So things have taken a turn. Yeah, it's all started with this more than 600 word statement from the White House on Friday night where they tried to explain and defend this commutation. And they said that this was all part of this broader witch hunt and this hoax and this, you know, essentially media driven campaign to undermine the Trump presidency from the very beginning. And we've seen that now start to reverberate with senators saying that, you know, we need to bring in Robert Mueller for hearings and for questioning when 
Roger Stone was convicted by a jury of his peers of lying to Congress, of witness tampering, of a number of different counts, and even members of the president's own administration in the Justice Department have defended this prosecution, saying it was righteous. That was uh, the terminology from Attorney General Bill Barr. So it, it's clear that the president faces an uphill battle in trying to turn this all into this broader witch hunt and hoax that he's been railing against when members of his own administration are, are not calling it that. But he does have some allies within the Republican Congress that are willing to go along with this. But it's important to point out that there aren't that many Republicans that are essentially following the president off the ledge and saying that Roger Stone is some victim and that he is part of some broader you know, conspiracy and, and hoax that would involve not only the jury and the judge and the Justice Department run by Trump administration officials, and, you know, the people that Roger Stone essentially committed his crimes against. But it would also involve, you know, the broader American public believing this. And that's why it's an uphill climb for the president to make this case and why it's been so interesting to see Republicans, for the most part, stay silent on this. They have been indeed silent and uh, have been struck by the silence, as many have. But also, let's go back a little bit to, in the Roger Stone case, because I was also struck by Howard Feynman uh, saying uh, or quoting Roger Stone after he talked to him and saying, I didn't turn on him and he knew I could have. Uh, I didn't roll over. He owes me. All of those things really seem to suggest that this was, as Bill Barr described it, even though he wanted to lessen or diminish the sentence, uh, a, ra- a righteous prosecution, a prosecution that, as Bob Mueller has said, was completely and totally valid. Yeah, and I thought it was a very interesting thing hear some of the kind of language that Roger Stone has been been using, uh, essentially saying that he protected the president, that he was willing to, you know, go up against prosecutors to defend the president. And he he ended up being, you know, convicted as a result of protecting the president and the president essentially paid him back. This is all sort of the kind of language you hear from mob movies and, and mob bosses sort of defending and protecting those who are loyal to them. And uh, the president and and Roger Stone and some of the president's allies have not been shy about using that kind of language and and really giving some evidence and ammunition to their detractors by saying that this was all part of an effort to protect the president's loyal ally, even when they're convicted of felonies. So I do expect that that language will continue to move forward, even from Democrats who are saying that this is all part of a protection racket in which Roger Stone defended President Trump, lied for him committed crimes on his behalf, and now he was bailed out of jail by the president as a reward for lying for him. Tulu Arlor Anipa, again, is White House reporter with The Washington Post, and Marisa Lagos is KQED's politics correspondent and co-host of KQED's political breakdown show. And Marisa, we talk about Republicans being silenced and only Toomey and and Romney uh, really coming out and being critical, uh, although obviously the Democrats have certainly been strong in this, particularly Pelosi and Schiff. But Wonder what you think about uh, the Lincoln Project and all this. These are former Republicans who have come out with strong ads against the president. Uh, and uh, I mentioned them because uh, they put out an ad recently where they talk about the campaign manager and deputy uh, campaign manager uh, being felons, the, dip, uh, the uh, national security advisor being a felon, uh, Trump's uh, longtime advisor being a felon, personal lawyer, etc. And with him saying, I am the law and order president. So. Uh, when, when we try to sort of deconstruct this politically, um, well, the Lincoln Project says it's not a campaign, it's a billion-dollar criminal enterprise, just sort of reflecting on what Tolu just said. 
uh, he, again, there's that million dollar question. How, what kind of impact is this having on, uh, well, not only on Republicans who are silent for that matter, but really on the voters? Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's a couple of things that's really fascinating. I'm laughing because I know some of the people involved as you do as well. Um, Michael Mike Madrid, who is a longtime Sacramento political consultant, um, is one of the leaders of that Lincoln project. And, you know, one of the things they've really set out to do is not just try to convince um, swing voters or Republicans, but really try to needle Trump. I mean, some of these ads they've only bought in the D.C. area on Fox News in the hopes that he will see them. Um, but I think this is not an insignificant point when you look at the swing states that have the very likely potential to decide this election, the presidential election. One of the things that a lot of polling, um, both you know Democratic and Republican and nonpartisan polls have shown, is that voters aren't as interested in a lot of the attacks that I think Democrats have fallen back on around Trump. They are very concerned, um, especially swing voters, about the perceived chaos of this administration, about the inability to kind of you know, serve the public in a way that we expect of our presidents. And so I do think that these sort of continual um, playing out of these issues, you know, having um, Michael Cohen go back, <laughs> going back into custody, having uh, this question over the stone sentence um, being dragged into the summer months. I, I do think there's a potential there for Trump's opponents to really use that um, to kind of undermine some of his arguments around his ability to rebuild the economy. But as you know, I mean, the, his base has largely stayed with him. And so I do think that a lot of these questions politically are going to continue to be played on the margins on that sort of um, very, you know, the, the narrower group of people who who haven't fully made up their mind yet, which I think, depending on where you sit um, on the political spectrum, can seem a little bit puzzling if you're very much in Trump's camp or very much against him. I want to read some comments that are coming in. Uh, Alex writes, Roger Stone's pardon is a consequence of the first instance of the head of a crime syndicate having pardon authority. Simple as that. Here's a tweet from a listener says, Michael Cohen sent back to jail and Stone is spared. One told the truth about Trump, one hid the truth. This administration runs like the mafia. So those comments seem to go together. And here's a listener who tweets, Roger Stone committed the same crimes as Bill Clinton did. Obstruction of justice via perjury and witness tampering, yet Bill Clinton was not even prosecuted for these crimes after his impeachment failed, political influence. And there are a lot of people bringing up, of course, a Mark Rich pardon that was uh, dispensed by Clinton right after he was about to leave his presidency, or for that matter, the uh, uh, pardon of Chelsea Manning that uh, President Obama gave. Uh, but in the meantime, if you have questions or comments or want to weigh in here about the decision to commute Roger Stone's sentence, we do want to hear from you, and you can join us at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. And since I said we wanted to talk about national politics, I want to go back to you, Tulu, if I can, and uh, talk about uh, opening schools, because uh, there was a big interview over the weekend with Betsy DeVos, uh, Secretary of the Education on CNN with Dana Bash, and essentially she was asked very pointedly about should schools uh, be following the CDC, should they really be uh, uh, following those guidelines, uh, and essentially she said nothing in the data suggests that schools should be open up to children necessarily. It has to be case by case, school by school. She's pretty much following the Trump administration on this, isn't she? Yeah, it was a little hard to, to follow exact arguments. He was a little bit all over the place and didn't really 
give a lot of clarity about what the administration's position is. We have seen these guidelines come out from the CDC, which include, you know, recommendations that people within classrooms should be distancing at six feet and that there should be all these other measures that would make it hard for a lot of schools to, to reopen. President Trump lashed out against those guidelines, saying they were too tough and too expensive and impractical. And Vice President Pence said that there will be new guidelines coming out from the CDC, but then we heard other people within the CDC saying they stand by the guidelines and that, yes, schools should try to social distance and have other measures in, in place to keep students safe. And then Betsy DeVos uh, struggled to really give any kind of clarity during this interview. Her only clear message was that schools should be open full time in the fall and that every local community would have to make a decision about how best to do that, but that there was no real federal effort to help schools get to that place and that for schools that felt that it was not safe to reopen because they're experiencing spikes in cases or because they can't do social distancing because of space limitations. There's no federal plan. There's no federal guidance about what they should do, only sort of criticism for schools that are deciding to do more remote learning, criticism for schools that have not committed to doing five days of in-class instruction, and not a lot of guidance, not a lot of help. Uh, so there is a lot of frustration out there in local communities that the federal government is not doing much besides saying open the schools right away, not talking about safety measures, not talking about how to make that happen in a safe way. And I think that's all going to come to a head in the next few weeks as these local school districts have to make decisions without that guidance, without that clarity from the federal government about how to do that safely. Well, the federal government under the president is threatening to withhold funds, which he doesn't necessarily really have the power to do if the schools don't open. Yeah, that's been the latest uh, effort to further kind of inflame tensions and make this a political issue. I think it's very clear that both Democrats and Republicans want students to be able to learn and learn safely and go to school in a safe manner. There's no real politics around this other than the fact that the president is now injecting politics in this, into this by saying that he's going to, you know, defund schools or not allow federal funding to go to schools that don't reopen. He has limited power to be able to do that, but even the threat could be chilling for a number of school districts that rely on, to, certain, to a certain extent, on federal funding for disabled students and for other students with, with issues to be able to fund those programs and the threat of having those funds withheld could actually have an impact on their education. So this has become a political issue. The president has involved himself in this. He's trying to say that schools that don't, that don't open are doing it in some ways to try to spite him or try to win political points, even though it's very clear that all parents want their students to be able to go to school in a safe way and as they want their students to be safe in school or to be safe at home and to be learning. Uh, so it's not clear where this goes from here, other than the fact that it will be further politicized with an election on the horizon. But President Trump has shown no unwillingness, no compunction about politicizing a number of different issues. And now it's public education for students is the latest to add to that list. Well, what you say to Lou dovetails with Randy Weingarten, uh, president of the American Federation of Teachers. She said essentially, put out a statement saying this is about politics. It's not about safety. But let me go back to you. We're talking about national politics. And again, if you'd like to join us, we welcome your calls at 866-733-6786.
or you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'd like to go back to Marisa Lagos, who again is KQED's politics correspondent and co-host of Political Breakdown Show, and ask about another what is being perceived as politicized effort by the White House, and that is uh, to essentially discredit Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci. Uh, is uh, reports are out about, uh, well, we should say, first of all, that Anthony Fauci is uh, head of the National Institute of uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases and has been a leading spokesperson on behalf of the White House with the Coronavirus Task Force, but he hasn't talked to the president apparently in a number of months, and now we've got the president and the administration talking about Fauci in pretty uh, seriously indicting terms. Yeah, it appears that... Um the administration gave a list of statements that they, you know, accredited, you know, credited to Dr. Fauci, uh, to the Washington Post, sort of an oppo research style, something you would normally see in a campaign, um, trying to kind of undermine his statements over the past months. Um, a lot of them apparently without the sort of context of what he said before and after those statements and without acknowledging in many cases that the president himself was either agreeing with Fauci or sometimes trying to undermine his message um, as he gave it. Um, I, I think that this speaks to both the administration's concerns with what we're seeing you know, around the nation with these surges and the fact that we're in a far worse place than we were in a lot of places than when we shut down. Um, also, you know, this president we know is very interested in his own sort of personal approval ratings and, and how people are perceiving him. Um, and there has been a lot of polling showing that Fauci, or some polling rather, that Fauci is far more popular and trusted among both Democrats and Republicans. And so um, it seems like this is kind of an attempt to undermine some of that credibility. But in some ways, it seems like it's backfired a bit. Um, and I think that, you know, what you see is Fauci, like a lot of, I think, career sort of administration officials, um, trying not to take the bait, trying to keep his position, um, which I do not believe the president has the direct authority um, to fire him. Does not. Yeah. And so it, it is like this is I think this is sort of you, we have to take this in context of the way that this entire pandemic has been handled or rather not handled often by this White House. Um, the president often doesn't want to hear information that doesn't jive with sort of his idea of where he wants things to be going economically um, and, and with our public health system. And so you see that these attempts to kind of undercut anybody who might disagree with him or in this case, I think, who might have more of the public trust. Let's bring a caller on. Neil, you're our first caller. Good morning. Yeah. Um, uh, in the Roger Stone case, I was wondering what the difference between a commutation and a, um, uh, what's the other word? Uh, a pardon. A pardon is, and why that's significant. Yeah, Marisa, you want to outline that for him? Yeah, so he, so he, under what the president did, this is essentially just um, alleviating Stone from having to serve his prison time. It's a commutation of the sentence itself, not of the underlying felony charges. So he is still a felon. Um, the president could later pardon him if he wanted to, but this is not, this doesn't sort of wipe away those felony convictions. It just uh, saves him from having to report to prison this week, which, you know, I think coming on the, your last half hour, it's an interesting question, right? Obviously, this case is so political, Michael, and I think there's very valid sort of constitutional questions. And as you mentioned earlier, these date back to previous presidents, Democratic and Republican, but about the, the, the propriety of pardoning somebody whose crimes were related to your own election or your own sort of um, uh, conduct while in office. Um, but 
at the same time, we do have a coronavirus pandemic happening. We do have COVID-19 sweeping through prisons uh, across the nation, not just in California. And forgive um, me, Roger Stone is 67 years old. He's 67 so he's... and he's a nonviolent criminal. So I, it is it is sort of um, something where I think sometimes the left uh, speaks out of both sides of its mouth on some of these issues, for sure. Let's bring another caller on. Bradley, that's you. Welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention that both Roger Stone and um, Donald Trump in interviews have mentioned that they met at uh, Roy Cohn's house uh, in 1980 when Roy Cohn and Roger Stone were working for Reagan. And this is um, something that connects us back to uh, Roy Cohn and McCarthy and real witch hunting. And, uh, you know, we can't forget that. And well, also, thank you, you know, for reminding us of that. Reagan. I'm sorry. Go ahead, yeah, brother. And links Reagan, Reagan and, the, you know, the whole attack on um, uh, any kind of progress in this country. Yeah, appreciate your thoughts, Bradley, and thank you for them. Let me bring another caller on. That's Tom in San Francisco. Tom, welcome. You're on the air. Tom, do we have you? I'd yeah. Love to, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. You know, Mary L. Trump's book, I think, should be noted here. She just states flat out that he really enjoys lying. He really likes doing that. And what she also mentions in his book, in her book, is that uh, he asked her to write a book for him. And she couldn't find anything that he does. He doesn't do anything. So with that in mind... And all her documents, legal documents, were given to the New York Times, and they wrote that 14,000-page article that won them the Pulitzer. So it's all kind of nailed down what this thing is. And I have a hard time regarding him as president. I like to call him the non-president and leave it at that. Okay. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the Mary Trump book, and there's a forthcoming book by uh, Michael Cohen as well. And uh, Talu, let me go back to you on this. Uh, these seem to certainly enrage the president, but do they really have any effect on his base or certainly uh, even for that matter, any real dramatic effect on those who are sort of in limbo about who they want to support, independence, whatever? Yeah, well, I think when it comes to the president's base, for the most part, uh, aside from just a few groups within that base, they are rock solid in support of the president. They continue to be enthusiastic for him and Various tell-all books only get them closer to him and, and make them feel stronger about defending him. But when it comes to independence, they have been telling pollsters that they are tired of the chaos surrounding the White House. They are tired of turning on their television and every day seeing a new headline about drama and intrigue and chaos surrounding this president. Maybe it was easier to do when the economy was in good shape and things were kind of moving on autopilot before the pandemic hit and upended the lives of essentially the entire country, all 325 million people have been impacted by the virus in one way or the other. And I think adding to that with chaos and tell-all books and family drama. It's exhausting. Should, it's exhausting for a lot of Americans, for a lot of independents, for a lot of suburban voters, moderate members who may have voted for Trump in 2016 and now just want to turn the page. They don't mind the fact that President Trump called Joe Biden sleepy. They probably would prefer a sleepy president over a president that doesn't allow them to get a night's rest. And let me go back, Marisa, to you and just get your take on what we were talking about a minute ago because it concerns so many of our listeners, and that is 
the idea that kids uh, should be back in school, that the president uh, is really behind so strongly and has uh, really uh, let Betsy DeVos essentially represent him on that, presumably. Yeah, I mean, it's really frustrating. I'm a parent myself, and we're going through this right now um, in San Francisco, where the school district said on Friday, essentially, the numbers do not support any sort of return and physical return in August when we're scheduled to go back to school. And I I think, you know, DeVos, as we just discussed, just couldn't really give a straight answer as to what she is calling for. I mean, the administration wants to say go back. They won't offer guidelines. They won't say when schools should pull back, when there are hot spots. Um, I think clearly the numbers right now in most places do not support a safe environment for students or teachers. And let's not forget, at least in California, we already had a massive shortage of substitute teachers. Um, There's a lot of very vulnerable people who work in schools. And so I think that you have the situation where there's not clear guidance from the top. There is guidance from the state here in California, but there's so much power that rests with local districts that as a lot of things in this pandemic, we're going to see this hodgepodge. And I I think the real concern that I see coming down the pike is we're also seeing massive delays, problems with testing sort of rise up again. And I think that at a time when we're all trying to figure out a way to live with this virus and get back to some semblance of normal, you need the federal government to not just be helping with guidelines and all of that, but with the resources. I mean, truthfully, you could probably double state, uh, you know, school budgets if you wanted to really put in these social distancing measures and and have the staff capable of doing it. And we're all looking at cuts because of the recession that this pandemic has caused. So I think it's a really tough situation, both at the individual level, but also for school districts and for governors. Um, And it's 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 only being muddied more by the Trump administration response at this point. It is indeed a tough situation. And uh... You know, at this point, I think we're not even really all that aware of how it might be resolved. But I want to go back to some comments and tweets from listeners. Uh, Just here's Ross, who writes, everyone, including the media, dances around Trump's clear and long term mob ties, both Italian and Russian. Are they afraid of lawsuits? Uh, I don't know uh, who's afraid of lawsuits, but uh, that question has come up and those ties have come up on this program. Certainly we had David K. Johnson, specifically a Pulitzer Prize winner, talking about them, among others. Let me go to a tweet here, and uh, let me go back to you, uh, Talu, on this. Uh, This is Lottie who says, uh, I fear this is just the beginning of a long list of pardons coming in November through January. How far can Trump and Bill Barr push this? And, of course, we get into the question of, well, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, uh, likely to be commuted or, for that matter, pardoned. Well, we have seen the president use his pardon and commutation powers pretty uh, extensively directed at his friends and colleagues and political allies more so than past presidents. He actually has not used the pardon power more than his predecessors. He's used it pretty sparingly when it comes to actually using it for people who may just be deserving because they've served a long sentence already. They've shown good behavior in prison. Um, The president could definitely use uh, the powers to pardon you know, other people who were his political allies, whether it's Paul Manafort, whether it's Michael Flynn, or even his son-in-law's father, uh, Charles Kushner, who uh, served some time in prison for, um, you know, obstructing justice and and tampering with witnesses years ago. So the president has a lot of friends and allies who who have a nexus to the prison system or to the criminal justice system, and he could use his powers, especially after the election, if he loses to uh, pardon those those people and all kinds of other people who 
maybe he sees them on Fox News or there are other Republicans who want to curry favor with, with the president and who need to get one of their friends pardoned. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if we did see that. Well, we'll have to leave it there because we're flat out of time. But Tulu, good to have you with us. And uh, Marisa, thank you. Thank you both. And for all of us here at KQED, I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.